Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this gathering of believers, Lord. We thank you that we can come before you and learn, have your mysteries made known to us, understand your truth. So God bless us in this time, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So we go through the book of Acts. We remember again our theme verse. Let's say it together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, usually each night I'm the last one to go to bed, and our house has several different levels. And so when I get to the the second level, which is where our, our dining room and our kitchen is, and I finish getting ready, I turn off the light, and I don't turn on any other lights because I don't want to turn the upper lights on. I don't want to wake Tammy when she's asleep. So because of that, when I go to bed, I have to walk up two flights of stairs in the dark. Now, this is not always easy, you know, because walking in the dark is hard enough. Walking upstairs is, is even more difficult. And so I have learned, I've counted, and I remember now that there are 10 st- steps to the next landing, and then there's six more steps to the top floor. But even though I know the truth of that, because it's in the dark, I'm still extra careful, careful because you can easily still have a misstep and that could cause something really bad, right? But in those nights when I go to bed at the same time as Tammy, it's really nice because the light's on and I'm able to walk upstairs in the light. Much easier to walk in the light. Well, as I was thinking about how we've been talking about sharing our faith, I've talked about how one of probably the easiest and best ways to share your faith is just to share your testimony, right? Just to tell people, who were you before you met Jesus? What were your struggles? What were your complications? Where were you falling short? You met Jesus, and how did he change your life? How is your life different? Because Jesus has transformed your life and helped you to become more like him. And when you share that truth, when you share who you are before Jesus, how you met Jesus, and who you are after Jesus, then it makes some sense to people. But what I haven't told you at this point is that that's really just the first step. In a sense, without me telling you more, you're kind of like walking in the dark, walking upstairs in the dark. There might be a misstep because people are going to start to have questions, right? They're going to start to ask you about Jesus. They're going to start to ask you more. And so the next step is to share the truth of who Jesus is, why he had to die, and why he was raised from the dead. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what our scripture teaches us this morning. So we see Paul, when he comes to the synagogue... First of all, he goes to the synagogue often first, and he goes to the synagogue first because he knows that at the synagogue there are God-fearing Jews and God-fearing Gentiles there, people who are interested in religious things. And so when you see the yellow, please read with me. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. See, he's coming to these religious people, people who are interested in religious things, but they don't quite have the truth. They don't know who Jesus is, and he's wanting to explain to them the truth. He wants them to know truly who Jesus is, what he has done for them, and why that makes a difference. 
But second, Paul knows that Jesus is someone who is real. He is God in the flesh, and he knows that this can be proven. And so he takes some time to explain and reason with the people who Jesus is so they can understand more fully the truth of Jesus, the truth that he had to come to this earth, suffer, die, and be raised from the dead. Now, we too should look for opportunities when we deal with religious people, right? I mean, when you're talking to someone and someone is interested in religious things, that's an opening, that's an opportunity for you to share your faith with them. That is a signpost that says, hey, you have an interest in religious things. I know the one true God. Let me introduce you to him, and then let me tell you about my life, and then hopefully there's interest there, and let me tell you more about Jesus and that often was how Paul handled things. We need to talk about why Jesus was the Messiah, why he came to die for our sins, and how it's important that he was raised from the dead even more. See, sometimes you'll share with people and they'll be interested. You see in the scriptures that many were interested and actually believed when Paul was talking about it. Others will not be. They'll be angry or jealous, as the people were in this passage. You never know how people are going to respond, but the call on our lives is to share. That's the call. When we have the opportunity, we need to take advantage of that opportunity, and we need to share what we know. And that's why we need to constantly learning more and more and more, so that we can share more of what we know. The Christian faith is reasonable, even though it goes beyond reason. Faith is not just about blind trust. Faith is not just about hoping something is true. Faith is not something that you just believe. It is based on God's self-revelation. His coming to this earth to show himself to us. His self-revelation and it involves a reasonable, rational response to who God is and what God has done. Yet often Christians limit Christianity to just belief. So if I were to ask you, do you believe in God, you might assume that I am asking you the question, do you believe that God exists? In fact, that is often how people respond if you use that phrasing, that question, do you believe in God? They think you're asking them, do you believe that God exists? And many will say yes without even knowing Jesus because they just assume you're asking them this simple question. It is considering, faith is considering the evidence of God's existence and coming to the correct conclusion that he does exist, but it's even more. I have faith in God can mean I believe there's, an, there's a God. But we need to take people further than that. We need to take them to the one true God in the Bible, believing that Jesus was in fact Lord. He was God in the flesh believing that Jesus has come to redeem us all from our sins, that Jesus has come to bring us in unity under his lordship. Biblical faith always has this important theological content in it. It's not just a feeling or a sense of something other. There is something other out there that God somehow ethereally exists. 
It is not simply believing that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but rather giving your life to a way that he truly is your Lord and Savior. Putting your full trust, your full, the fullness of your life in his hands. I have talked before about Lee Strobel and the case for Christ, but he's also written a book called The Case for Easter. I want to read a little uh, excerpt, a little summary of the book for you, what the case of Easter, case for Easter is about. It says this, Of the many world religions, only one claims that its founder returned from the grave. Meaning that in all the religions, um, religions, they have a main character who at some point died, but Christianity is the only one that talks about that that one who died, the founder, returned from the grave. That's Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very cornerstone of Christianity. But in our sophisticated age, when myth has given way to science, who can take such a claim seriously? Some argue that Jesus never died on the cross. Conflicting accounts make the empty tomb seem suspect. How credible is the proof for the resurrection? Focusing on his award-winning skills as a legal journalist on history's most compelling enigma, Lee Strobel retraces the startling findings that led him from atheism to belief. Drawing on expert testimony first shared in his blockbuster book, The Case for Christ, Strobel examines the medical evidence, was Jesus' death a sham and his resurrection a hoax? The evidence of the missing body, was Jesus' body really absent from his tomb? The evidence of appearances, was Jesus seen alive after his death on the cross. Written in a hard-hitting journalistic style, this book probes the core issues of the resurrection. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, superstitious myth, or life-changing reality. The evidence is in. The verdict is up to you. Lee Strobel, in his book, gives much evidence that who Jesus is is true. And what, Jesus, what has been said about Jesus in the Bible is true. It can be proven. It can be reasoned. It can be explained, not just believed, but truly known. As Acts 17 continues, we see Paul and Cyrus go off to Berea and continue on their journey. And where do you think they go first when they go to Berea? Well, where do they go in the last city? They go to the synagogue, right? They go to where the religious people are gathered. Their goal was to share Jesus with the people. And we see chapter after chapter that Paul and Cyrus are going on this journey, right? And they're preaching the gospel, and they're seeing people believe. And then when they get a mass number of Christians that, who are believing, they start a church. And they set up a leadership, and they get that church going so the church can be a place where people are taught and worship God together and where they're prepared and trained and then they're sent out to go make more disciples. And that is their process. They go into an area, they preach, many believe, they set up a church, they set up leadership, and then they set forth that church to make a difference, to make an impact in that community. One of the things that our church is really trying to wrestle with right now is how do we make the most of our impact in our community? And part of the challenge of making an impact in our community 
is connecting with our community, right? This next Saturday, you'll hear an announcement later, but next Saturday, we're going to have a booth at the farmer's market. And uh, Arnold and others from the outreach team have set up a mock demonstration of what we're going to have at the booth there. And the goal of this little demonstration that you see, I hope you'll get to play it a little bit and see what it's all about, and then hopefully even sign up to help make this happen, because our goal as a church is to connect with the community so that we can have an opportunity to share our faith, so that hopefully we can bring them to Christ, and so that we can grow the church and grow the kingdom of God. And so they go into Berea. We see something different here. It says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So according to this verse, these Christians were a little bit more noble. And why were they noble? Where two things made them more noble. One, where they received the message. So when the message was being preached, they were listening, they were receiving, they were loving it. But secondly, what made them noble is that they didn't just take at face value what was being said. They examined the scriptures. They studied the scriptures. They wanted to make sure that what they were hearing was the truth. They wanted to know it more deeply. One of my weaknesses is desserts. I love desserts. I love pie. I love cake. Lately, I've been really loving peanut butter M&Ms. Yeah. Tyler and I have this kind of thing. When we go to a movie, we take a box of hot tamales, we split the box in half, and during the movie, we eat hot tamales during the movie. It's what we do all the time. It's just, I love hot tamales, right? But I love dessert. So when someone offers me dessert, I eagerly receive it. <laughs> Maybe you're like me, right? You love dessert. You know you're not supposed to have it. It's not the best for you, right? As you get older, you're like, mm, okay, I don't know if I should be eating it, but I love dessert, so okay, I'll eat it. You talk to me and do it. As much as I eagerly love dessert, I should eagerly love the Word of God even more. Whenever we have the opportunity to hear, encounter, and know the Word of God, we should eagerly receive it even more than what we do with dessert. If I had a pie in one hand and the Bible in the other hand, and I was offered the choice, do you want the pie or the Bible, I should choose the pie every time. Now, confession, I might not choose the Bible every time. Oh, I said pie, didn't I? I said, oh... I caught myself, didn't I? Oh. Don't they call that a Freudian slip, right? That's right. I should choose the Bible every time. <laughs> I should choose the Bible every time. Because we should eagerly want to receive the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for what? For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We should love the Word of God because it makes us more complete, more prepared, more trained, more able to live the life that God has created us to live. We should love the Word of God. 
But also what made the Bereans of noble character was that they examined the scriptures. They examined the scriptures to make sure that what was being taught to them was true. What was being taught to them was right. They wanted to make sure that they were hearing the truth of God and not being misled. You know, there's nothing worse than having someone teach you something and not knowing that what you were taught was wrong, and then you go and you tell it to someone else, and then they learn it, and then later on you find out that what you learned was wrong, or maybe just a little wrong. Even a little wrong is wrong. And then you go, oh no, I taught someone else that wrong thing. How terrible that is that they too think that what I taught them was true. We need to understand and read and believe and know. You know that the Bible now has been translated into 670 different languages. And the New Testament has been translated into 1,521 different languages. See, way back when, during the Reformation time, in our Reformed uh, history, the Catholic Church didn't want the Word of God to be read by the, by the average person. They, they feared that if the person, an average person read the Bible, they would misunderstand it, they would misinterpret it, and then wrong teachings would happen. And so the Bible was only translated in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek and also in Latin. And the only ones trained to read the Word of God were the Catholic priests. But along came Martin Luther, and he's like, you know, there's a lot of wrong that's been done in the name of God. And there's been a lot of corruptness in the church by the twisting of scriptures for personal benefit by the Catholic priests. And so Luther said to himself, this is enough. We need to make sure that the word of God gets into the average language, the normal, everyday language, so that everybody can read the word of God and know the truth of God. Because it's really the, the spirit that teaches us. I mean, sometimes teachers, preachers, ministers help us to understand a little bit more, but ultimately is the spirit of God that comes in us and helps us to understand the truth of God. We should be able to read this for ourselves and understand what God has for us to know and how God wants us to live. Now we have the Bible available to us to read. Uh, those of you who were with me a few weeks ago in uh, the Lent service on February 14th, you heard me talk about this, but I'm going to talk about it again. It's called Too Proapt. I'm going to just tell it to you because it's a way that you can study the Bible a little deeper, a little better for yourself. Okay, so Too Proapt stands for two Ps, pray, preview, R is read, O, observe, A, apply, P, pray, T, tell. Let me just give you a summary of that. So before you ever read the word of God, the first thing you should always do is pray. Because it is, like I said before, the spirit of God that helps you understand. You say, God, help me to understand what I am reading. Give me a mind that can understand spiritual things. And so we pray. And then you pick a passage, whatever passage you're going to read, and you pick it. You say, okay, I'm just going to read over it. I'm just going to preview it. I'm just going to get a sense of what it's saying. And so you read it fairly quickly. You just read right through it, and you get a preview of it. Then you go back a second time, and you read it a little more deeply. You get a sense of what it's talking about, kind of the, the 
the passage, what it's about, the overall experience of the passage, right? You read it a little bit more deeply. And then you go back a third time. And the third time, is so now that you kind of have a sense of what the scripture is saying, you begin to really study it. Maybe you pull out a couple of key words or a key themes that really set the passage apart. Maybe you know how to, uh, to use the original languages. So you go back to the Hebrew or the Greek, depending on it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And you actually look at some of the, the original languages and you kind of play with that a little bit. Or maybe you look at the historical setting or the geographical context, right? And you really dig deep, however deep you want to go, the deeper the better. And you really, really study the scripture to understand it in its fullness. And then you take what you've learned in that and you say, okay, this is the important part. How does it apply to my life? Because you could read something, but if you don't apply it to your life, if it doesn't impact your life, if you don't let God transform your life through the scriptures, then you've wasted that experience because that's what the scriptures are supposed to be about, to transform your life to the character of Jesus Christ, to become more and more like Jesus. And so you say, how does this apply to my life? What is there in that word of God that speaks to me. So we, maybe we go back to 2 Corinthians about the scriptures, being able to teach and... Um, see, I forgot it already. To uh, teach, rebuke, correct, and train. So let's say I choose correct. Let's say I choose correct. And I say, okay, the word of God is there to correct me, okay? So how am I going to apply that to my life? I'm going to say, what in my life maybe is a little off in my walk with God? so that I know what the Bible teaches, and I say, okay, this is how I need to live my life because I'm not living correctly according to the Word of God. And so my goal for the week is to, God, help me to be corrected by your Word so that I'm walking more in line with you. And then I pray again, and I pray and I thank God. God, thank you for what you have shown to me. Thank you for what I have learned in this time. Thank you for, for this application in my life. And you give thanks to God for all that you've received. And then the T is really, really important. Because you notice how I already, I already forgot 2 Corinthians 3.16, right? But now that I've been telling you about that, I remember that the word of God is there to correct me. And so I tell someone, Dan, I read this passage today, and it tells me I need to correct something in my life. And this is what I want to correct. So, Dan, will you keep me accountable on that? This week, you know, maybe at the end of the week when you see me or send me an email, say, hey, how have you done in correcting your life? And so I, I asked Dan to be a part of that process with me. And just by me telling Dan what I learned, I'm going to remember more what I studied and what I learned. When you tell someone, you tend to remember it more. And then I have someone keeping me accountable now, lovingly. He's going to lovingly write an email this week, and he's going to say, hey, what did you correct in your life this week? Right? You're going to write me that. And then I'm going to write back to him, nothing. No, I'm not going <laughs> to... I'm not going to write that. Hopefully, I have something to write back, right? Because I've been working on it, and God's been correcting something in my life. Make sense? Makes sense. Amen. amen. Thank you. I like those amens. So now I have to go back to this page. So anyway, but here's another important thing. James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow brethren, believers. Why? Because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. You notice one of the things about the Bereans is they were reading the word to make sure that Paul was teaching the truth. You know, I humbly stand before you and I teach and I preach the word of God. And I want to do the best I can. 
I want to teach you the truth of God's word. I study and I, and I really work hard at trying to give you the truth of the word of God. But I'm a fallible human being. And so there might be times when I say something a little wrong, when I get something a little wrong. And some of you might be studying it, and, and I've had people come and do this before. Pastor, you know, you missed this. This word said this, and remember, this kind of changed this, and, you know, you got this a little wrong. Oh, man, you're right. You're right. I got it a little wrong. We need to keep each other accountable so that we are making sure that everything that is taught in the Word of God is the truth of God. And then we're not leading people astray. It's a big, important task. I humbly have received this calling from the Lord to teach and preach the Word of God. But I ask you, go ahead, keep me accountable so that I am teaching you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? So then, we go on to the end part of the passage. And if you think about Jesus, you, you understand Jesus at all, at all, you know that there is nobody ever in the history of the world, nor will there ever be anyone like Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus was fully human and fully man. There's no one that was fully human and fully man except Jesus. And Jesus was a perfect human being. There's no one that's ever or ever will be a perfect human being. He's God who came in the flesh to die for the sins of the world. But yet, we had this wonderful verse. Read with me the yellow. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So one of the magnificent things that came out of God taking on flesh was he understood the temptations and the challenges that there are as we live in the flesh. He can empathize with us. He can know our struggles, what we're feeling, what we're dealing with. So when you go to God in prayer, you can say, God, I'm dealing with this. And God will say, I understand that. I'm with you on that. I'll help you through it. I'll strengthen you to get you above it or over it or around it. God understands our challenges and our situations. Bring those to him. He understands when you're going through things. And yet, because he did not sin, because he's perfect, there might be times when we feel like we have difficulty relating to Jesus, right? You know, whenever I have that, it, it might sound funny, but I actually go back to Genesis. I know that Genesis was before Jesus came to this world, but Genesis tells us an important thing. Genesis tells us that we were created in the image of of God. And the New Testament then takes up that theme and says that we are called to be like Christ. And so we begin to think, I'm in the image of God. I can be loving and giving and forgiving. I can be creative. I can be powerful. I can be wise. I can be like God in many ways. And so I begin to relate to Jesus in the ways that I have been made in the image of of God. I've been made to be in relationship with God, and I've been made to be in relationship with others. And so I can begin to relate to Jesus in that day. When I became a father, I started understanding God in a whole different way. As a parent, you understand God in a different way because of this. I think most parents, or maybe all parents would agree with me, when you become a parent, there is something about your love for your child that is completely different than any other love you've had for anyone else ever in the world. 
You love them at a deeper way. You would give your life for them. You would sacrifice and give yourself totally to them. You forgive them for things they've done wrong. You love them unconditionally. And as I became a father, I began to understand on a deeper level God's love for me. And I was amazed at God's love for me because of the love that I had for my child and said, wow, now I begin to understand God's love, God's deep, yearning, unconditional love. What a wonderful feeling it is to know that God loves us in that way. That is a message that we need to share with people who don't know Jesus. They don't know the love, the depth of the love of God. They'd, so many people don't, aren't loved. They don't feel loved. They feel lost and lonely and confused. They need Jesus. They need the love of God in that way. And we can give it to them. Well, we get to the last part, the very last part, and Paul is uh, in the city, and he sees all these idols in the city. And at first, he is really grieved when he sees the city, or these idols. And the scriptures tell us this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. You again see he's reasoning, isn't he? He's reasoning with them. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, because they were different from their gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, which was foreign to them. So the Epicureans were those whose chief goal was to achieve the maximum amount of pleasure with the least amount of pain. They believed that this life was all that there was, and so basically their philosophy was, so if it feels good, do it. Now you might think that that's a modern phrase. That came back with the Epicureans. If it feels good, do it, because we only live here for so long, and then we're no more. So enjoy your life to the full. It's all about pleasure, right? And limiting your pain. Now, the Stoics on the other side, they believe that you can't control much of what's going on around you and that a lot that comes into your life is difficult and hard to deal with. And they basically said, you need to take control by standing up and saying, I'm going to overcome whatever comes to me. Right? It's all kind of about me, right? It's about me. I'm going to, it's my power. I'm going to be strong, right? I'm going to deal with it. So these were the two people, uh, two groups that was um, debating with Paul. And these were the people that Paul had to try to say, how am I going to relate Jesus to the Epicureans and the Stoics? We probably have that all the time, don't we? We're dealing with people, we have conversations, they come from a very different place, and we say, hmm, how am I going to deal with these kind of people? I bet that most people you encounter will fall into one of these two categories. Either people that are looking for pleasure in their life, or people that say, I'm my own God in a sense, I'm my own strength, I have to be strong for me, I have to do it all on my own, so I'm going to stand up, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to overcome it. And in some way, you're going to encounter people like this. And so they're asking him about what he was teaching. Well, they had this inscription on their altar that said, to the unknown God. And Paul says, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting 
description that you have on your altar, you're worshiping an unknown God. Let me tell you of the God that you don't know. You don't know God, but I know God. And I want to share that God with you that I know. I want you to understand the truth. I want to, you to understand the mystery of who God really is. He is the one true God who created all things. He's the one who gave you life and breath and meaning and purpose and love. Paul says in verse 26, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. See how he brought in some of their own stuff. So your poets have actually talked about him and didn't even know it. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. This is the God you worship. This is the one that you need to know. This is the one you can know on a more deeper level. And then he says in 29 and 30, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So they were building these gods of their hands, right? They had these statues, and these were the gods that they worshipped. And Paul is saying, you know, for a time, God kind of overlooked that. But now, because Jesus has come into the world, and he's made it so that the Holy Spirit now can come into our lives He's not ignoring this anymore. He wants all people to repent. Remember the first thing that Jesus said when he started his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that was his message as he started to go down. Repent. Understand your sin, repent from it, and follow me. You're worshiping these unknown gods. Turn from them. I know the God that you need to worship. And he is a God who is personal, who loves you, who will connect with you, who will watch over you, who will give you insight to your life and to living. And we see that some, heart, some of their hearts were touched and they believed. Others were curious and said, we want to hear more. And others were just angry and sneered at him. Do you know the truth about God? Do you know the truth about Jesus? It's really quite simple, right? Sin came into the world through Adam and Eve. And because of that, throughout the centuries, oftentimes man has turned to his own ways, following his own ways instead of God's, and gotten lost from God. And so God sent his son Jesus into the world to show us the love of God, to die for our sins, to be raised from the dead so that he could give us the power to overcome our sin and to live for him. That is the God we worship. That is the God that we need to help others know. Let us share the mystery. Amen. Let us pray.